Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better editor, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years' experience. My name is Valerie Francis, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Joining me shortly are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Leslie Watts, Kim Kessler, Anne Holly, and Jari Bolander. Each week, we watch a movie from one of the 12 content genres and complete a global Foolscap worksheet, then discuss it using the six core questions. This week, we're analyzing the 2013 movie Jack the Giant Slayer, a modern-day telling of Jack and the Beanstalk. Screenplay by Darren Lemke, Christopher McQuarrie, and Dan Studney, and directed by Brian Singer. Here's a synopsis adapted from Wikipedia. In the kingdom, Jack, a young farm boy, is fascinated by the legend of Eric, an ancient king who defeated an army of giants with a magical crown. The young princess Isabel is also fascinated with the same legend. The giants came to the kingdom by climbing down a beanstalk that had grown from magic beans when King Eric and when King Eric died, the remaining magic beans, as well as the crown, were buried with him. Ten years later, Jack goes into town to sell his horse to support his uncle's farm. There, he sees Isabel and becomes enamored with her. Princess Isabel's fiancé, Lord Roderick, has raided King Eric's tomb and has stolen the magic beans and crown. A monk has, in turn, stolen the beans from Roderick and gives them to Jack in exchange for his horse. Isabel would rather explore the kingdom than marry Roderick, so she sneaks out of the castle and, in a rainstorm, seeks shelter at Jack's house. One of the beans falls through the floorboards and takes root, growing into a massive beanstalk that carries the house and Isabel into the sky. Jack joins a massive rescue party that includes Roderick and his sidekick, as well as Elmont, the captain of the King's Guard, and his second-in-command, Craw. As they climb the beanstalk, Roderick and his sidekick cut the safety rope, intentionally killing much of the rescue party. At the top, they discover the giant's realm and decide to split into two groups, but not before Roderick forcibly takes the remaining beans from Jack, although Jack does manage to save one of them for himself. Jack's group is trapped by a giant who takes everyone prisoner except Jack. Roderick and his sidekick encounter two other giants, and while the sidekick gets eaten... Roderick saves himself by donning the magical crown. Jack follows the giants to their stronghold, where the two-headed giant leader, Fallon, has imprisoned Isabel and Elmont and is preparing to kill them. Roderick walks in and enslaves the giants with the crown. Before they can kill Isabel and Elmont, Jack rescues them, and the trio escapes. Jack and Isabel head down the beanstalk. Elmont stays behind to confront Roderick, and kills him, but is not able to get the crown. Instead, Fallon takes it and now controls the giants. Elmont then escapes down the beanstalk. Fallon finds the magic beans and uses them to create four new beanstalks, and the army of giants descends on the kingdom. A battle ensues, and Jack, who has overthrown Fallon using the remaining magic bean, takes the magic crown, defeats the giants, becomes the hero, and gets the girl. Jack and Isabel marry and tell the story of the giants to their children. Okay, we've got lots and lots to discuss this week, so we're going to just jump right in and get started with the editor's six core questions. Leslie, do you want to talk about the global genre? Sure. So the global genre probably isn't going to be a surprise, but it's action, adventure, labyrinth. So the external value for this 
genre is life to unconsciousness to death to fate worse than death. We don't really venture too close to the negation of the negation on this, the fate worse than death. We're pretty much in the life to unconsciousness to death realm. So that one's pretty straightforward. And of course, we t- we'll talk about how well the movie meets the genre conventions and obligatory scenes. The thing that's interesting to me in terms of genre is the internal genre. And I think it's worldview education. That's a, a thought plot, as Norman Friedman would refer to it. And the internal value is meaning to cognitive dissonance, to meaninglessness, to meaninglessness disguised as meaning. So basically what we have is Jack's attitude in the beginning is inadequate. He allows himself to be distracted because nothing's really important. Nothing really matters in his life. And his uncle is trying to get him to pay attention, but that's not compelling enough. Friedman finds the source of inadequacy important, whether it's a disillusioning experience or from you know, not being exposed to other possibilities. I think the former is more important, but both could be implicated. So basically, a person, you know, who's not giving a lot of thought, not thinking about things in a complete way, is subjected to a series of trials, which we have here, and it changes his thoughts. And so we're left with a feeling of relief, satisfaction, and pleasure if everything works. Now, the the really interesting thing is that in an action genre, the internal genre doesn't have to be present. There doesn't have to be one at all. For example, most James Bond movies don't have them. But I see one here. It's pretty shallow because that's what you have with action stories. But I do see him going from, Jack, that is, going from not being able to focus on what's important to being able to focus. And then to me, that's the way he's able to outwit the giants. It's interesting because when I was going through this, I really didn't see much of an internal genre at all, which is just exactly what you said, right? That that action stories don't necessarily need to have them. But I even struggled with the external. It's obviously action. But when I was going through the subgenres, I thought it's closest to Labyrinth, but it's not hitting Labyrinth right on the nose, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I agree with what you said. And I'm curious to... Um, to get going with the obligatory scenes and conventions, but I know Kim had something else that she wanted to add about the the genre as well. Kim? Yeah, I guess for internal, not Leslie, now that you break it down that way, I see that education, it's not hitting super strong. So when I was looking at it, since I didn't feel like the way they set up his character in the beginning was clear enough, like I fe- it felt a little... Um, hodgepodge like he's kind of got this issue over here and he's kind of got this issue over here and we're not I just he just his character wasn't really clear so it didn't feel like a clear arc of education so then in the end I since I didn't feel like his worldview was a clear shift I was like well status clearly changes he goes from being the poor farm boy orphan to then he ends up being the king he gets to marry the princess and be royalty and live in the castle so it felt like a status shift to me most clearly and so I kind of landed on sentimental in the end because it was like he starts out kind of this weak sort of character that isn't have much focus and then he ends up trying and succeeding against giants so I kind of landed on status sentimental 
just because I think mostly they just didn't do a good enough job with the internal arc, and it was a little scattered. Awesome. Thanks. Anne, would you like to bring us through the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff? Sure. I will. Um, these are mostly following the Jack storyline, although there are several other storylines that weave together and feel just like the Beanstalk looks in the story. The beginning hook is summed up as poor farmer Jack naively brings magic beans home from the city. They grow into the sky, carrying a princess up to the giant's realm of Gantua. Meanwhile, an advisor to the king is hatching a takeover plot involving marrying the princess and stealing a magical artifact. The inciting incident of the beginning hook is Jack's cart is stolen, inciting his need to sell the horse at any price. Progressive complication turning point is he accepts magic beans in trade, but before he can redeem them for money from the monks, the Princess Isabella turns up looking for shelter. One of the beans sprouts, shooting Jack's house, with the Princess still in it, up to the sky. The crisis question is, does Jack risk his life to try and catch her before she gets too high, even though he's not keen on heights, or does he run away for help? Of course, the climax is that he climbs, because he is supposed to be the hero. The resolution is he fails, he falls, and the princess disappears into the sky. The middle build summary is, with a band of heroes and the traitorous advisor, Jack climbs the beanstalk into Gantua to rescue the princess, awakening the wrath of the giants and losing most of their team. When one giant falls to earth, the king, who is down on the ground, must give the order to chop the vine down, sacrificing his daughter and his men to prevent giants from coming down into the kingdom. The inciting incident of the middle build is that Jack insists on joining the expedition to rescue the princess, and they set out climbing unaware in dramatically ironic fashion that the king's advisor who joins them is a traitor with plans of his own. The progressive complication turning point, there's a series of complications that don't progress hugely, but when the heroes fight to escape the giant's Roderick, the bad guy steps forward as the giant's new king wearing the magical crown that controls them. Elmont, who might or might not be a hero, kills him soon afterwards, and the head giant, haha, head giant, he has two heads, takes the crown and puts it on as a ring. Our two remaining heroes rescue the princess and escape from labyrinthine Gantua, but they cause one giant to fall to earth, proving to the king waiting below that giants really do exist. So the crisis in the middle build changes hands. The king on the ground must decide whether to chop the giant vine down and sacrifice his daughter, or wait and risk giants finding their way into the kingdom. At the climax, the king does order the giant beanstalk chopped down, just as Jack and the princess are on their way down it, setting up a race against time and cutting off all access for the giants. And the resolution of the middle build is three heroes get down in the nick of time as the last of the beanstalk falls destructively to earth, and the land, uh, the kingdom, appears to be saved. False happy ending because we still haven't accounted for that magic crown or those beans. The ending payoff is summarized as the giants find all but one of the remaining beans and ride the resulting giant beanstalks down into the kingdom, which they nearly destroy, before Clever Jack uses the very last bean to destroy the giant leader and sees the magical crown becoming master of the giants. He sends them back, cuts the last beanstalk down, saves the kingdom, and marries the princess. But the spirit of the traitorous advisor lives on through time, never quite defeated. I won't go through every single one of the five commandments, because I think they're pretty straightforward. So for time, I think I'll pass the baton on here and let you all take over. 
Okay, so now we're getting into the good stuff. <laughs> we're into the obligatory scenes and conventions. Kim, would you like to bring us through the obligatory scenes, please? Yes. I struggled with these, you guys. Like, they, were, <laughs> they were hard. For an action labyrinth story, one of the obligatory scenes is an inciting attack by the villain. In this case, it's like our access point to the labyrinth, I guess. And then, you know, we encounter other villains like Roderick and the Giants. So I marked it as the beanstalk that destroys Jack's house and takes Isabel to Gantua, which is 27 minutes in, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about later. But it was felt like a really slow setup to me to get to the action-y points of the story. So, you know, the fact that the beanstalk doesn't grow until 27 minutes in was frustrating to me. The hero sidesteps responsibility to take action. I kind of struggled with where does he really struggle? He doesn't really sidestep it as much as he he failed. You know, he does try to climb in and rescue her, but he falls and gets knocked out. And then the only other thing I thought of was when he is threatened by Roderick, when they're up in Gantua at the top of the beanstalk, Roderick knows he has the beans. You know, he threatens basically him and his uncle if he doesn't give them to him. And so Jack hands the beans over, and he doesn't warn the others. That was one thing I noticed. At no point in the rest of the story did he ever tell the captain of guard, Elmont, or anyone else that, hey, Roderick has the beans, you guys. There's times when he could have done that and he doesn't. So that was kind of an interesting thing where he doesn't really, he's not really being his hero self yet. Forced to leave the ordinary world, the hero lashes out. I kind of looked at this maybe more from Isabel's point of view because I couldn't really find one from Jax. So Isabel refuses to answer the giant's questions. She's in, um, she's in a cage and the two-headed giant is trying to get her to answer questions and, and she won't. There is that point at the midpoint when Jack slays his first giant. He kills the cook in the kitchen who's getting ready to cook Elmont. But again, I couldn't really see much there. And I guess I kind of maybe always struggle a little bit with this one. What constitutes lashing out? You know, so I'd be interested to hear your guys' thoughts about it. Okay, next one is discovering and understanding the antagonist MacGuffin, the villain's object of desire. So I've marked this as right around the midpoint when Roderick enters with the crown and reveals his plan to invade the kingdom and the surrounding lands. So at that point, Isabel's there and the captain of the guard is there and they both hear his plan. You know, he tells her the wedding's off and he's going to invade everyone. And, you know, that's where he reveals himself as a bad guy. The next one is the hero's initial strategy against the villain fails. So they tried to go up the beanstalk to find her and she wasn't in the house. So then they had to go search for her and she'd been taken by giants. And then they go try to get her from the giants. They never really had a clear strategy, I guess, um, other than they're looking for her and trying to get her. The only other one I was thinking was when the king cuts down the beanstalk. That was their major strategy. Well, hey, if we just cut down the beanstalk, the giants can't come down. But that doesn't work because the giants find the other beans that were on Roderick, and they're able to use those to come down. So realizing they must change their approach to salvage some form of victory, the hero reaches an all-is-lost moment. I couldn't really find an all's lost moment in here i guess other than when jack realizes the giants are coming down and then he races off to warn the princess but there really wasn't that all is lost moment i love a good all is lost moment and i just couldn't see it (laughs) the hero at the mercy of the villain uh is the central event of an action story um it's what the reader is waiting for so here it's where the hero's gift is expressed and it's the scene when General Fallon, which is the two-headed leader giant, he has Isabel. Jack jumps at him with a big axe, and 
the giant just grabs him and the axe falls out of his hand. And so now it's they're both in his grips and he makes this a funny line about don't kick on the way down. And he's about ready to, to eat Jack and Jack takes the magic bean out of his locket necklace that he has and he drops it right down his throat. And when it gets into his stomach, that's what activates it and it grows up out of him and he defeats both heads with the beanstalk and it severs all of his limbs and it makes the hand drop right next to him that has the crown that he's wearing as the ring and they're able to get the crown then. And then the final one is the hero's sacrifice is rewarded, which is Jack comes out and he defeats the giants. And then the king changes the rule that the princess must marry a nobleman and she chooses Jack and they get married and have babies and tell the story the end. So those are the obligatory scenes um, (laughs) as I see them. If I had to pick from the gut what the all is lost moment is in this story, it's when the king has to decide to cut the vine down, even though his oh, daughter is cool. still up there. There you go. But yeah. it's like it's there always lost for a different character. It, it's it's yeah. part of the problem yeah. with this with this story. There are too many different villains. The beanstalk, mm-hmm. which if you need an inciting attack by a villain, it's the beanstalk. It's acting like kind of a Jaws monster or force of nature, like a tornado or something. It just is what mm-hmm. it is. Which would put the story in the action, what do we have, adventure, environment environment sort of thing, mm-hmm. which it isn't. But is it Roderick, or is he just a buffoon? Is it the giants in general, and General Fallon in particular? I just found it very muddy. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, there's, there's a lot going on here. First of all, like one thing I'll, I would like to add to what Anne has just said the hero victim villain are roles they don't have to be characters so generally speaking it's okay for the hero victim and villain to change but it's got to be clear and as as ann said there's so much jumping around here that you kind of get lost in it with the exception perhaps of isabel who becomes a, a victim very quickly and sort of stays a victim sort of the the damsel in distress stereotype but the villain does move around a lot. Roderick is brought up to be a villain at the very beginning, but he dies really quickly, uh, or relatively quickly. Elmont, who's played by Ewan McGregor, who's, who's probably one of the biggest names in the home film, is he's certainly acting in a very heroic way and can be a hero. And he, he's more heroic than Jack, actually. So there's lots going on there. And what's going on with the beans? <laughs> Really, what's going on with the beans? <laughs> well, to me, the, be- the beans the are the MacGuffin. They're the MacGuffin to me. And okay. if they're the right. MacGuffin and that's what the villain's object of desire is, that's another thing that muddies the villain because the beans are the object of desire of the giants, of Roderick. The hero has to get them back. It was just muddy. Yeah. but And the thing is, right at the very beginning, the monk says to Jack, whatever you do, don't get them wet. And then we have... <laughs> Scene after scene after scene of pouring rain. And I watched this movie with my 14-year-old daughter who said, those beans have got to be wet by now. Come on. (laughs) You know, so it totally, it was interesting to watch it with her because sometimes I think, you know, when I'm studying stories so much, am I losing sometimes the, the entertainment value of a show? So I was kind of watching her reaction. And the fact that she knew that those beans must be wet by now destroyed the magic of the story it took her out of the story and to me whenever a reader or an audience member comes out of the story you got a problem and also how did the giants know about the beans 
it's very loosely in there that some of those giants are still around from when King Eric was up there, but you had to really pay close attention to get that. You know, it's not like I was also doing the dishes while I was watching the movie. I was sitting and watching the movie pretty closely, and I had to go back and check on a couple of things. But, you know, the fact that we're having this discussion right now about the obligatory scenes is really sort of proof positive as to what Sean is always saying, which is the very first thing that any writer has to do is nail the genre. That's step one. What is your genre? And the reason you need to know that and make a very clear decision about that is so that you know exactly what the obligatory scenes and conventions are so that you can respect them and deliver them up to your audience so that they know what kind of story that they're reading and they're not getting confused. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think it's important not only to have a scene that fills the role, but to make sure that it's set up properly so that when the scene does show up on screen, that it delivers that payoff, right? Like, it's not just the fact that the scene exists, but that it's a payoff for other things and a setup for things that are yet to come. Like, that all of the scenes do a job to propel the story, not just exist on the screen, which is what I feel like they do here. They're not setting up and paying off in the right way where when it does hit, you're like, like, yes, that's the scene. Oh, man, look at that all last moment. They're not hit in the way that they need to be for the genre. So we talked a little bit about the hero, victim, villain, and that moving around. And, of course, those are conventions. So why don't we move now to the conventions of the action-adventure story uh, with Jari. What do you have? I, I thought that clearly the hero was Jack. And for me, the reason I felt that way is because Jack saves people multiple times and he he's never put in a position where someone saves him so he saves the princess he saves the captain of the guard he's you know he's generally the guy who's figuring out how to defeat whatever he has to defeat specifically the giants that are being led by lord roderick and this is part of the hero victim villain that we've been talking about uh, one of the conventions is these three must be clearly defined, and actually from the discussion, people don't agree with me, but that's good as well. That's why we have these discussions. The victim, to me, is clearly Princess Isabel, um, and it's done right away where she's, she goes into the land of the giants and is been captive. So definitely a common way to do it is the uh, princess needs to be saved, just like in uh, The Princess Bride. <laughs> so there's there's that. And then, yeah, the, the the main thing about the villain for me is that uh, Lord Roderick has an ulterior motive for not only marrying the princess but getting the beans and controlling the giants. So he he's the biggest villain, I think, the alpha villain. And it does switch, I agree, that between the giants. And it's not really done very well in terms of, like, well, why is the king of the Giants, such a strong character as well, but you can kind of see that. There's lots of scenes where he's taking control of the the Giants, and that just seemed a little muddled as well. Uh, The second one is the protagonist must be a hero, so Jack clearly wants to be a hero. He wants to bring back the princess. I think the scene where um, they're at the base of the beanstalk and they're trying to figure out how to go save her, he should be a little reluctant to go off and do this, but he just literally within 20 seconds, they're like, yep, we're going to do it. Some farm boy is going to go up with this elite guard, and you're like, okay, I don't get this. That was a little odd for me. Number three, the hero's object of desire is to stop the villain and save the victim. Clearly, Jack wants to save the princess, since he's infatuated with her, and he's going to do whatever it takes to save her. So that's pretty, pretty, in my mind, pretty straightforward. The power divide between the hero and the villain is large. The villain has far more power 
when you first see this, it's pretty obvious. I mean, they're giants, and Jack's just a man, and Jack's just a farm boy, so there is a huge gap in capability. But but Jack's pretty smart, and he does a bunch of things to uh, hide from them, and is good at kind of staying out of the way. And then you then you find that Lord Roderick has the crown and can control the giants. So now there's even a huger disparity because Lord Roderick is is even more powerful than Jack. Let's see, the speech in praise of the villain. This is actually really interesting because it starts off in the beginning where they talk a lot about the story, and it's through the parents reading the story to the kids about how great the giants are and how much the, the past king defeated them. And so to me, that's, there's been, there were multiple speeches in praise of the villain. And then since this is a labyrinth plot, the environment makes it harder for the hero to save the victim. And I think it's pretty obvious that having to climb up the beanstalk and be in this whole brave new world of the giants, that it's going to be way more challenging to figure out how to go save her and even where she is and, and all the trials and tribulations that they go through. So those are the six that I came up with. I know, I know there's a couple more that Leslie's going to talk about in a second, but I, I agree with you guys that this is just not, <laughs> not the best movie, but you know, I, I like the CGI, so <laughs> maybe I'm just a simple kind of guy. <laughs> well, CGI was great. It really was. But just back to your, uh, to your point on the power divide being, really large between the hero and the villain. To me, this is more ammunition or or more of a reason for Roderick to have been the villain because when he has the crown, he commands the giant army. So to me, that's what makes him so strong over whomever you want to say, whether it's Jack or Elmont or anyone else. So to me, that was more why Roderick would be the villain, not just the giants. But yeah, like it... You can look at this so many different ways. And now in other films that we looked at, when we have these layers upon layers that we can look at, it makes the story richer. But in this case, we're not really looking at layers so much as scratching our head and trying to figure out who's on first. <laughs> so if your audience is trying to figure that out, you something has gone awry. And in my opinion, it's time to go back to basics. I totally agree. So, and now our real expert on action is Leslie, so let's hear from her. Leslie, what do you got for us? I see some of this differently. I'm closer to Jari's feeling about it. I think they pretty well got most of it. The execution is not great, but I think they met the requirements for a labyrinth plot, but the execution is lacking, and it would be, I would love to see this story in the hands of a real master storyteller perhaps i don't know ridley scott somebody like who um, oh no anyway. not, not <laughs> we're gonna do no, a whole season no, of ridley scott no, films no. just for jerry well, you know i like the guy don't just, know him very well like his storytelling but uh, not him again so there are a few extra conventions for action adventure and these are mentioned in a post that Sean wrote that's actually related to the tipping point as an intellectual action adventure story. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. So these additional conventions are a clear destination, which here it's the city, the princess and Jack want to get back there. The giants want to get there. It's the, the destination of choice. And then 
there's a clear path to the destination. And the beanstalk is that. It's the, you know, it's the highway, it's the conduit. Then we have sidekicks. So we have Elmont, Craw, and Bald. I think Craw also serves as a mentor, but that's not essential to the action adventure. And then there are set pieces. And these are mini stories within the story. They tend to be a sequence of scenes. And there's a clear goal for that sequence. And it involves action. Some of the set pieces that we see in this movie are going up the stock, then finding the princess, then escaping from the giants, then defeating Roderick, then getting down the stock, and then dealing with the giant's attack, right? These are all stories within stories. And then fantasy, which is on the realism genre clover leaf, has a convention that Sean mentioned recently in an episode of the podcast that includes the impossible task So in The Lord of the Rings, it's destroying the ring. I'm forgetting what the others are now, but but I can include more examples in the show notes. So those are additional for action, adventure, and fantasy conventions. And then what I want to say about the hero, victim, villain stuff is that this was really fuzzy for me when we first looked at Die Hard, which is the quintessential example of a modern labyrinth plot. And I see the beanstalk as part of that, the labyrinth. It's similar to Nakatomi Plaza in Die Hard. It's not the villain, but it really complicates things. So we're talking about like Poseidon Adventure would be another example and Towering Inferno. And it's where the the location, it's almost a character too. And it complicates things very much. It creates a different, the hero has to adjust their strategy and tactics because they're not in a straightforward place. So then without the beanstalk, the princess can't be taken and the giants can't invade. They don't have a highway. The princess wouldn't have been at their mercy. I love your explanation of the labyrinth. I really do. I think that's excellent. However, it's raising a question in my mind Mm -hmm. about hero, victim, villain, specifically the hero. If the labyrinth is forcing the hero to adjust and to change a strategy as he goes... That's Elmont. Jack doesn't have a strategy. Jack just sort of fumbles along. And, the you know, for, for Elmont and Craw to have gotten captured by the giant and Jack to magically be the one who escaped was kind of odd. But yeah. Elmont is really the, the brains behind the operation. He's the one in charge of the rescue. And to me, Jack just sort of, I think he's supposed to be the hero. I mean, it's Jack and the beanstalk, right? He's Jack the yeah. giant slayer, right? He's supposed to be the hero. But... Uh, Like you said, I think he could have been fleshed out more. He could have been more heroic, a more heroic hero. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I really love your explanation of the labyrinth plot. I think that the key to this is in Jack not being keen on heights. The beanstalk forces him to focus on what's important. That's his main strategy shift. And it happens a little bit too early his shift from being kind of a flighty guy who can go into the city with, okay, go sell the cart. Okay. And then he gets there 
and he loses the cart. Just he doesn't pay attention. That's laid out really clearly in the beginning. But then Craw gives him some good advice about cake, which I loved. <laughs> and that's when he has to pay attention. He has to focus on what's important. The beanstalk provides the context and the necessity for him to do that. I see Roderick as he's a shapeshifter, certainly, and a minor villain. And I see the giants as the heavy-duty villains, and Fallon more specifically, because he's the one who really wants to get the princess. That's his goal. And in a way, that makes the princess the MacGuffin, because he's bent on destruction, right? He's bent on revenge, and getting Eric's heir is the thing, you know, like, that's what he really wants. And I see Roderick as a sort of undervillain. Even though he has the crown, he's not able to really fully realize his power because Elmont defeats him. But this works because Elmont is defeating the minor villain with the knife that Jack gave him. So it's something that the hero set up. And so it's okay that someone else is actually doing the payoff or defeating that villain. Now, Jack defeats the major villain, the giants, and particularly General Fallon, by focusing on what's most important and paying attention in the moment. Because dropping the seed into the giant's mouth and being able to focus in that moment, he couldn't have done that in the beginning, probably. And Fallon, again, is the one. He's the driving force. He's the one who wanted to eat Isabella. So, through defeating Fallon, he gains mastery over all of the other giants. Now, again, it's not executed very well. And if you have to look this hard for the pieces, then it's, it's failing. So I do see all of these conventions in there, but they definitely could be strengthened. Leslie, my friend, my hat is off to you. I do not know how the heck you got all of that. Uh, did, we, did we watch the same movie? I'm not sure. Uh, what, the one thing I will disagree with you on uh-huh. is that I don't think Roderick is a shapeshifter at all. Because in the very first scene when, we intru- when we're introduced to him, we know he's got an ulterior motive. He says to his sidekick right off the bat, as soon as they're married, he doesn't care if Isabella walks off the edge of the earth. Because he's got, he's got other plans. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So... Just in listening to this description, I'm like, well, you know, Leslie, no one can ever say you do not know how to dive deep into a story. (laughs) Well done. Well done. Oh, thanks. (laughs) I love action stories. I love them for their subtle internal genres. And I love them because it's life and death, you know? It's serious stuff. I got to ask you a question. We have the Roderick. A is the minor villain, and the Giants are the major villain, and the Beanstalk is part of the location. So when it comes to that obligatory scene of, like, the initial attack by the villain, I guess, where do you mark that? Yeah, it's it's really murky, but if I think about it in terms of Die Hard, the villain strikes. And it's murky because Roderick made the beans available, and that's why they come to be in Jack's possession and then in the rain they they shoot up in his house. I mean, I would say the inciting incident, there's a sort of pseudo inciting incident when the monk 
or a call to action when the monk offers to trade the beans for the horse, but it's not great. It's not really. I mean, it might be for the beginning hook, the inciting incident, but again, hard to say. But clearly what knocks his life out of balance is the beanstalk. Right. Okay. So the beanstalk really is still when the adventure part kicks off, even though it isn't specifically a villain. It's all because the villain stole the beans and etc. Yeah. But again, it's muddled. Okay. So we're agreed on the muddled part for sure. We sure are. (laughs) So, Leslie, talk to us a bit about the point of view and the narrative device, please. Yeah, just quickly, this is a typical cinematic point of view in third person. We go from scene to scene, mainly with Jack. We're with Jack more often than not. And then we get lots of exposition through the bedtime story in the beginning, the very beginning. Now, I I feel like the framing story is not really well executed. You know, we open with Isabella and Jack, you know, these kind of mirror tales of their being told bedtime stories by mother and father, respectively. In the end, Isabella and Jack are telling the stories to the children, which initially felt pretty satisfying to me. Okay, that makes sense as who's telling the story and why. But then we see the crown being used as this device to kind of transport us to present day London, where someone, perhaps Roderick's 20 great grand nephew, is eyeing the crown jewels and looking at us knowingly. I don't know what that's all about other than a wink and a nod. Hey, maybe this is really real, but it's not well executed again. Yeah, that part came out of the blue. We could have ended the story very neatly with Jack and Isabel telling the story to their children again, because it raised a lot of questions that didn't need to be raised. Like, is this guy, the young boy who stays behind and looks at the crown, his name is Roddy. The teacher actually calls out Roddy. Yeah. So is this a descendant somehow of Roderick? You know, like you said, a nephew or a a great-great-grandchild of some in some way, which would have meant that Roderick had other children at the time he was supposed to have married Isabel, and if yeah. it's, which is kind of weird, and yeah. not at all in the story. Or if he has nieces and nephews, well, it's that's not even in the story. Or yeah. is this some sort of reincarnation of Roderick? Anyway, just like you said, it raises unnecessary questions. Yeah. The Princess Bride is probably the model for this uh, mm-hmm. framing story, where you have the grandpa telling the grandson a story, and we have that throughout. Well, you wouldn't want to do that with this one with Isabella and Jack as adults reading to their children, because that would give away the ending. We don't want to do that right. in this case. So you couldn't do that. But you could definitely set it up where the two kids are being told the story, you know, Isabella and Jack as kids being told the story, and then at the end, wrap it up with them telling the story to their children, and then just knock the rest of that off because it's really messy and not good. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, no, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. So would you like to quickly bring us through the objects of desire and the controlling idea, and then we'll move on to good examples? Sure. So objects of desire, really clear. The want in an action story is to save the victim and defeat the monster 
And specifically in the labyrinth plot, it's to save the victim, Isabella, and escape the maze-like edifice, but also, in this case, save the kingdom. The need for Jack is to learn to focus on what's important. And so we see that kind of coming out in the controlling idea, as I've kind of crafted it, that life prevails when heroes outwit. And I should have overpower in there as well, because that's part of it. But but essentially, outwit the villain by focusing on what's most important. So before Jack changes, he allows his attention to wander. It makes him vulnerable to being tricked and being influenced by his fear where he's not keen on heights, etc. Not entirely, but he is influenced by it. And then he doesn't have any interest in heeding his uncle's warnings because there was nothing at stake. But Craw gives him that great advice and it starts to change him. He becomes more motivated. So that's what I see as the way he outwits the villain is by focusing on what's most important and staying on mission. I think it's really ironic that the biggest problems we found with this movie f- came about because the script could not focus on what was most important. Uh, I thought we, maybe we should send them the story grid. <laughs> uh, Here's the free copy. <laughs> Here's the free copy. That's right. You can reach us at. Okay, so <laughs> we like to end every episode with um, some good examples of what this film brings. <laughs> I don't know if I could have said that any more awkward. So, Anne, why don't you start us off with, uh, you know, what Jack the Giant and the Giant, Jack the Giant, <laughs> oh, wow, Jack the Giant Slayer <laughs> uh, is a good example of what, in your opinion? <laughs> it's a good example of what not to do in 2013. <laughs> I, I, I could not understand. I mean, I was really annoyed by this. How either society, human or giant, survives in the almost complete absence of females. Uh, the mothers are dead. There are no giant women that we can see. I mean, I was willing to buy that maybe they all look alike or something. And the one <laughs> female character is a genuine damsel in distress who screams for help, is in a cage, and wears armor for no reason. Now, I'd, I'd have bought that 20 years earlier, but they can't get away with it in uh, 2013, I think is the year of the movie. Um, I don't think this is specifically a story grid problem, but it does go to the question of innovating, which Sean is always talking about. If your first idea in retelling Jack and the Beanstalk is to populate it entirely with white men and one really weak woman, assume that that was a cliche and keep digging. (laughs) (laughs) Very well put, Anne. Yeah, I 100% agree. What a a lame way to set, set the whole world up. It was it was a shame. I, I noticed several similarities, also borrowings heavily from Lord of the Rings, but I think Leslie has a clearer view on that, so I'm going to pass that on to her. Well, I think it's definitely a mishmash, I think, was your term earlier. And I think the intent was homage, but execution, not great. Hot Fuzz is our, you know, it's such a great example of paying tribute to great stories in its genre and this one following that one in this season it doesn't do so great it's not as well executed it's not as well acted there are some interesting more obscure glimpses from the lord of the rings aragorn using the weed to heal frodo faramir's ride back to gondor being chased by orcs and 
it's nice that they wanted to do that. The line from Phantom Menace that Ewan McGregor delivers, it's, you know, it's kind of funny. But I think one of the big problems is, uh, in execution is that they couldn't decide whether they wanted this to be humorous and camp or be serious drama. And as a result, they didn't execute it well. And one of the things about a comedy is that, you know, in a comedy, the core event should be funny. And here it really wasn't at all. But a lot of it was just ridiculous and not funny. So it works as an action story, I think. But the clearer style genre and innovation, as Anne pointed out, would really help a lot to make it a more successful story, more satisfying story. Exactly. And, you know, just to back up what Anne said earlier, this is what happens when the genre is not clearly defined. You know, it doesn't satisfy. And if your first instinct is to write a cliche, cliches work. I mean, that's why they're used so often, right? And in your first draft, you could have cliche after cliche after cliche, and that's totally okay in a first draft. But then when you go back through the editing process, what you've got to do is identify those cliches and innovate them. Dig deeper. Figure out how else can you present the hero at the mercy uh, mercy of the villain, uh, in speech and praise of the villain, or any of those other scenes. When you fall into uh, a damsel in distress stereotype, how else can you portray her? Or him. Um, or, Or him. Or him. Absolutely. And I also thought it was a great example of a nice contrast to what we had when we watched The Bridges of Madison County. In that film, we had a lot of two-person scenes, which are very hard to pull off, but we had two really great actors and a solid script, and they were able to pull off something that's very challenging, a two-person scene. In this film, we've got a bunch of stars, Ewan McGregor, Bill Nye, Ian McShane, Stanley Tucci, who are all great, but they had a weak script to work with. So even they, as an ensemble, can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. For me, I made pages of notes of stuff that <laughs> if I was the editor, I'd have been like, no, change this, no, change this. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? What it, they all kind of boiled down to for me was it's a failure of setups and payoffs. I thought the things that were set up didn't pay off, and the things that they tried to use as payoffs were not set up correctly. I'm huge on internal genre. That's my favorite thing. And so for me, the way they set up Princess Isabel and the way they set up Jack in Act 1 was really, I mean, they took a long time to do it for Princess Isabel to have this whole fight with her dad about who she should marry and about being worthwhile and she doesn't need to just be protected in the castle and she could have adventures and all the stuff that her mother had brought her up knowing and then she quickly turns into a victim and then she just stays that way for the rest of the film and then jack on the other hand goes through the film being very passive you know he kind of has this random part in the middle where he's just walking and walking and nothing else happens there's no other additional complications that happen to him at that point i thought that was a big miss they really didn't use that time well and he's just walking through the forest he walks by he sees this faberge egg and he sees this golden harp but he just walks by them like they're not part of the story they don't aren't woven in in any way they're just on screen you see them and that's it and then he finds his way to the kitchen and he ends up killing a giant And it feels just very passive and and weak and random. My big, big problem was the ending of the story where Jack uses the bean to defeat Fallon. And they're able to get the crown back off of his 
fingers. He's been wearing it as a ring. And then we go, our POV switches, we're outside now. The Giants have made it through the drawbridge. And Giants start, you know, bowing down on the ground because somebody's coming in with the crown that's able to overpower them. And it turns out that it's Jack. And he's holding it up. And then he puts it on his head. And Isabel just stands there. But the way that it was set up in Act 1, it felt like Isabel should come out with the crown because she was the one that didn't understand what the point of being a princess was she was the one that was king eric's heir it felt like it was set up for her to have her moment i was the victim but now i'm going to take you down by wearing the crown that is rightfully mine to me that would have been so much more rewarding anyway that's my big complaint that ending everything that they did to set it up it just did not pay off and it was almost i feel like the weakest part of the whole movie was when he comes out with that crown and And I'm just like, all right, whatever. (laughs) Okay, that wraps it up for this week. I think you'll agree with me that this was a great discussion that we had. And there's as much, if not more, to be learned from analyzing stories that maybe don't work as well. A huge thank you to my colleagues, Anne, Jari, Kim, and Leslie, for all their hard work this week in reviewing and studying Jack the Giant Slayer. We hope our discussion deepens your understanding of the action genre and ultimately helps you learn to tell a story that works. Links to the Foolscap and other materials will be available in the show notes. And we would love for you to comment, argue with us on our interpretations, and generally keep the conversation going. You can do that by contacting us on Twitter at StoryGridRT. In the next episode, we'll be taking on the thriller with Marathon Man, and both the novel and the screenplay were written by William Goldman. I'm really looking forward to that one, I can tell you. If you're writing in the thriller genre, or even if you're not and you just want to learn more, watch the movie and try answering the editor's six core questions yourself and see what you come up with and relate it to what we come up with next week. And if you'd like to support the show, you can doing that by telling another author about us or by visiting iTunes and leaving a rating and review. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.